You can go ahead and have a seat. As always, welcome to the Capitol Church. You have come uh, on a very special Sunday. I think all Sundays, to be fair, are pretty special. Uh, but this one especially is special because we have somebody here with us uh, that is a really, really good gift and a good friend of mine. We have somebody all the way from East Lansing, Michigan. Um, as, as we sometimes put before us, we're part of a network of churches that plants local churches near major universities. Um, Austin and his wife, Leslie, planted a church in East Lansing about four years ago. Austin, to me, uh, is not only a friend, but he's somebody that's like my first phone call when things are going on in my world, things are going on in the church that I need advice for. But I think beyond that, uh, he is the real deal when it comes to pastors. He's the kind of pastor uh, that loves Jesus, loves his wife, loves his kids, and just actively pursues becoming like Jesus more and more over time. And so the respect I have for him as a pastor uh, could not be higher. The respect I have for him as a communicator could not be higher. But even beyond that, the respect I have for him as a, a follower of Jesus and a man could not be higher. And so uh, we are blessed to have Austin Wadlow with us here this morning. So Austin, come on up, uh, and then I'm going to pray for him. Uh, one of the things I was told, if you're familiar with the football schedule, um, Ohio State played Michigan State, and he lives in East Lansing. But one of the things I was told, not only by him, but by several Michigan State personnel yesterday, was the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They were telling me that, knowing my loyalties to the Buckeyes. And so uh, we have a good relationship across our network, regardless of football schedules and rivalries. But it is a gift to have Austin Wadlow here with us. And so I'm going to pray and then turn things over. So join me. Uh, Father, uh, what a gift it is that you've brought Austin and Leslie, just in proximity to Shaylin and I, that you've brought him to a place where uh, I've gotten to get around him and be influenced by him and just get uh, the fingerprints of who he is and what he does, not only on me as an individual, but on this organization. We, we are just so blessed to have him. Uh, we love him a ton, and, and ultimately we're glad uh, about what you've done in his life and what you're doing in a room like this, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, love you, brother. How are you doing? You got to be doing good after last night. Y'all just absolutely murdered my team, all right? Uh, you know, this, I think it was this summer when NBC picked uh, uh, Michigan State, Ohio State as the night game on primetime television. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, which, by the way, this was before, you know, everything had happened in our football world up in East Lansing. And, and so we had high hopes for the season. And uh, I immediately texted Luke and I was like, bro, like we got to go to this game. Come on, I'm coming to Columbus. And uh, <clears throat> I don't normally ask for opportunities to preach at a church, but I was straight up asking for this one so that I, I had an excuse, you know, to come to the game last night. I've never been to the shoe, you know, and uh, so it was one of my bucket list locations. And so uh, got to go last night, have my first experience. How many were at the game last night? Anybody? Okay. All right. Well, I'll just say this. I'm glad it was cold because it helped numb the pain of... Uh, <laughs> watching my team get absolutely murdered. But uh, I, I want to say this before we jump into scripture this morning. Uh, man, it is such a gift to get to be here with you guys. Um, it is such a gift to see what God is doing here uh, in Columbus, which uh, I think I said this last time I was here. I, I hate admitting this being from East Lansing, but this is a really cool city. Uh, this is the first time that my wife has been able to come with me, and the whole time she's like on Zillow looking at houses and stuff. And I'm like, babe, we're not moving here, okay? We got a mission up north, which I hear y'all call it the school up north, talking about uh, the school that we call the school down the road, so, which I'll play them in a couple weeks. And 
like you said, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, wait, shoot, how did, what, what's the phrase again? Yeah, the enemy of my enemy, so we're friends, all right, uh, but guys, uh, I, you guys need to know what a gift it is to have uh, Luke uh, and Shay Lynn uh, in this church, Luke leading this church, I mean, guys, what a godly, gifted man, and um, you know, he's, he's saying stuff up here about me that he shouldn't have said, uh, all of that is true about him, and so it is a real privilege to get to open God's word with you this morning. So I, I, I want to pick up where we are in our study in Exodus. So if you've got a Bible, open to Exodus, and uh, we're picking up in chapter 15. I love Exodus. I was telling Luke this beforehand. Uh, my heart has a special place for Exodus because my wife uh, actually got saved uh, while she was hearing a sermon series taught through the book of Exodus. And uh, you're, you're probably seeing this already, uh, but Exodus... Man, in this book, God is like, he's revealing himself to us. I mean, it's like he's on this mission to show who he is. And here's the other thing about Exodus is in Exodus, we see that Israel's story is so much like our story. I mean, for them, they, they, they start out in slavery in Egypt as we all start out in slavery to sin. And they desperately needed this powerful God to set them free from something they had no ability to set themselves free from. And that's our story. We're in desperate need of a powerful God, the powerful God to set us free from not slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin. And, and man, you know, we're, we're seeing, we're learning who God is in this. So today, we're in Exodus 15 through 17, all right? We're covering three chapters today, uh, but we're not going to kind of, we're not, not going to read it all. We're going to take some broad strokes. My goal this morning is I want to ask and answer uh, three questions, okay? So I want to ask three questions. So be looking for those three questions in the sermon. So we're going to start Exodus 15. Uh, beginning of verse 22, Exodus 15, verse 22. I see a lot of Bibles out, so I'll, I'll do this. Uh, uh, if you got it, let me hear you say, I got it. Exodus 15, verse 22. Here we go. It says this, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. So you remember this is where you guys were, they're crossing the Red Sea. So they're leaving the Red Sea, which uh, we didn't cover the song of Moses, the first part of Exodus 15, but man, the way they worshipped uh, as a result of what God did coming out of the Red Sea, like, man, our worship flows from seeing what God has done in our life. Like, true worship flows out of that, you know. Uh, well, anyways, okay, that's another sermon. Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Mara. Uh, you know, I read this, and I hadn't made this connection until getting ready to preach uh, this week, but Mara means bitter, and uh, we have a neighbor uh, who, they just named their daughter Mara, and I'm like, were you not excited about having your baby girl Mara? Like, are you bitter about this, you know? Like, do you even know what Mara means? Hopefully nobody here is named Mara. If you are, your name's beautiful. Um, so verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And then verse 27 says, Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water, 
and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So completely different than Mara. Um, my son, I, I have four kids. Uh, my oldest is five. His name's Judah. He was born May 27th, 2018. And I'll never forget that day the rest of my life. So my wife and I, it was a Saturday. Uh, we were at this farmer's market hanging out, having a good time. She's like super pregnant. And uh, after a couple hours at this farmer's market, we, we come back to our, our home and, uh, and we're just vegging out. We fall asleep on the couch, kind of take a Saturday afternoon nap, which you can do before you have kids. That doesn't exist in our life now. And uh, we wake up from this nap and she gets up. It's too much information, but it's part of the story. She gets up to go to the bathroom to go pee. And so uh, she's in the bathroom. And as she's in there, she says, just like this, I mean, this is exactly how she said it. She says, geez, my water broke. And I didn't respond because, uh, you know, throughout pregnancy, again, probably more information than you want to know, but, you know, pregnant women have to pee all the time, the more pregnant they get, because I guess stuff is pushing on stuff and makes things smaller and whatever. And so uh, she would all, all the time have to go pee. And, and she had made the joke before of, you know, I, my water must have broke because I had to pee like crazy. And so she says, geez, my water broke. I didn't say anything back. I don't even know that I really listened to what she said there. And so <clears throat> she says again, Austin, did you hear what I said? I was like, what? She says, my water broke. And I said, wait, are you serious? And she says, yes, I'm serious. Do you want to come in here and see? And I'm like, no, I don't want to come in there and see. And, uh, and so I've, I start to kind of freak out a little bit. I'm, oh my gosh, all right, we're having a baby. And so she's in there finishing what she's doing. And so I go and get our hospital bag. You're supposed to have a hospital bag. It's, you pack, you know, clothes in it and stuff that you might need while you're at the hospital. You're supposed to have it ready so when the moment comes, you can rush out of there and get to the hospital. And we lived about 30 minutes from the hospital. So I go grab the hospital bag and I had to repack it because I don't know why I'd taken stuff out and was wearing it and threw some clothes in there, threw some snacks in there, you know. And uh, she comes out of the bathroom and I got the bag and I'm like, all right, babe, I'm ready. Let's go. And she says, no, no, no. Before we go to the hospital, I need to shower first and we need to clean the apartment. I'm like, babe, we're not doing any of that. You're in labor. We're going to the hospital. Uh, <clears throat> I argued with her and, and, I, and I lost. So she showered and I cleaned the apartment while she was showering. So we finally got in the car to head to the hospital. We're driving 30 minutes there and I mean, the, the, the contracts are just starting to kick in at this point. I mean, she's, we're, we're, we're driving, and it's like, you know, she's like bracing herself. They're starting to get strong. She's bracing herself in the car, one arm on me, one arm on the, on the door. And, you know, you know how it is when, at least in the movies, when women have contractions, they start to breathe funny, you know? They're like, <laughs> doing that whole number, right? Well, it's true in real life. And so she's like over here. I'm freaking out. She's like totally chill. Uh, and so we pull into the, the, the place where this hospital is. We can see the hospital. So... Uh, we go through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A, and uh, while we're going through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A, we order our food, we come up to the window, and this Chick-fil-A girl comes to the window to take her money, right when Leslie starts to have, like, her strongest contraction yet. She's over there going, and this girl's like, oh my gosh, is she okay? And I'm like, yeah, she's fine. She's just having a baby. Can we get our food, please? And uh, so we get the food, and, and we, we go to the hospital. And we're at the hospital for nine hours, okay, of her having these uh, increasingly like stronger and stronger contractions. Nine hours. Now pause for a second. What women go through when they go into labor or go through labor, it's crazy, okay? Uh, so a week before this, I was at this church I used to work at, and the kids director, the, her name was Erin, it still is Erin, she's alive, uh, but Erin, she stops me in the, in, the, in the hallway, and she's like, hey, Austin, how are the Lamaze classes going? Do you know what Lamaze is? I don't even know what that word means, but the class basically where they teach you, you know, what to expect when you or your wife goes into labor. And she's like, how are the Lamaze classes going? And I said, oh, we haven't done any of those. 
and she puts her hand on my shoulder and gives me this look of death like, are you kidding me? You need to know what happens when your wife goes into labor. Like, I was so freaked out when she said this. Uh, she looked at me and said it in so, such a way that it was like, Austin, if you don't know what to expect, your whole family's going to die, okay? And so I freak out. So I go to my office at the church, and I open up my computer, and I start Googling videos of what to expect when my wife goes into labor, which you should not do, okay? Uh, especially on your church computer. And uh, so all these videos start to pop up, and there's this one video of this woman getting an epidural, all right? And this doctor comes, you know what an epidural is? It's really like numb everything so, you know, the, she can't feel the pain. So this doctor comes and pulls out this needle and uh, shoved, it, shoved it right into the middle of her back. And I mean, immediately, I'm, I'm watching this, and I can't do blood, guts, needles, amniotic fluids, none of that stuff. I, I freak out and want to pass out. So I start to, all the blood rushes to my legs. So I shut my computer, I go to the corner of the room, and I like put my head between my legs to not pass out, and I'm thinking, I'm about to throw up here. This isn't good. I'm thinking, this is not good. I can't have the first thing my son sees when he's born into the world, his dad passed out in the corner with a puddle of puke at his feet. All right, I can't do that. So I'm thinking, all right, strategic here. When my wife, like when it's go time, she's about to have the baby, I'm just going to casually slip out of the room. All right, so back to the hospital uh, a week after this. Nine hours of increasing contractions. And the nurse comes in nine hours into this and she says, all right, it's go time. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to casually slip out of the room. Duh, 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 duh. And she sees me leaving. She goes, Austin, come back in here. I need your help. And I'm like, all right, I'm coming back in. I'm going to help. And uh, she says, here's what your job is. Uh, every time she has a contraction, you're going to hold one of her legs. And the nurse is like, I'll hold the other one. And your job is to count to 10 when she's having these contractions. You're going to help her know how long she's got to push for. And so that's what I did. Uh, hold her leg. And every time a contraction, you know, one, two three and Leslie's over there pushing and really hard working hard and stuff so nine hours three hours of this all right so 12 hours so three hours of this holding her leg counting while she's putting I'm like exhausted okay I mean labor is hard I mean it's hard for her too but I'm telling you they don't ever talk about how hard it is for the husband in this process I am white I mean it's the middle of the night I am exhausted I'm like babe can you hurry up and have this baby all right I am really tired and hungry I want to go to sleep it was hard work 12 hours total of this, 12 hours, man, it was crazy, and she was in a lot of pain, and chaos, and all this stuff, and I'm tired, and, and finally, our son Judah was born, he was born, and I'm telling you, something happened in that moment, I mean, we're exhausted, she's in pain, but the moment my son was born, it's like none of that mattered anymore, none of it mattered anymore, and, and the point that I'm getting at here is nobody wants to experience that kind of pain and chaos, but without that pain and chaos, without all of that we were going through in that moment. We never would have experienced the miracle of our son being born. And we never would have known and met Judah. Now here's why I share this story. I share this story because I want to ask this question. This is question number one. Which is better? Going back to Exodus. Which is better? Mara or Elam? Which is better? Mara or Elam? And, and you go back to uh, to. Uh, chapter 15, verse 22. L listen again to how it describes Mara. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, okay, you guys know science. You're in Columbus, Ohio State. Oh, you're really smart. So you understand this. Three days, no water. What does that mean for these people? How long can you survive without water? Three days, right? Something like that, right? Am I right? I, I got my education in Arkansas, so I'm not that smart. So is that right? Yeah, it's about three days. You can survive no water. So 
That's the situation they're in. Three days in the desert, no water. And then it says, verse 23, when they came to Marah, they couldn't drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? So this was Marah. They're in the desert. They have no water. They're three days in. Uh, they are dying, not just metaphorically, but literally for water. So finally they get to Marah and they come up on water. They see water. Now, what do you think they did when they saw Mara and they saw the water, what do you think they did? I mean, you know they'd been rationing the water they had in their water bottles or skins or whatever. And the moment they saw that water, what do you think they did with the water they'd been rationing? They downed it, right? They drank it all because they're like, I see the water. We're about to replenish our water resources. So they get to the, the water after they've downed all the water they had that they were so carefully rationing. And they realize when they get there, they can't drink that water. Why? Because it was bitter. Now, they weren't just being babies and not drinking bitter water. It was, it was undrinkable. They, they, they called it bitter because the minerals that were in the water made it undrinkable. It would have been worse for them to drink the water than to not drink the water. So can you imagine what they were feeling in this moment? I mean, they're already miserable. They're in the heat of the desert. They are, they are like so thirsty, dying of thirst, literally, metaphorically, all the above. They down their water. Then they realize, <clears throat> well, this water's undrinkable, so not only are they miserable now, but they're probably angry because they thought the water was going to be their salvation. And, and then on top of that, they're probably panicking because, I mean, literally, you, you can't survive without water. They just finished off their rationed water, now they're panicking. That was Mara. That was Mara. So which is better, Mara or Elam? Verse 27 describes Elam. It says, then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So in other words, 12 springs of water in Elam, plentiful water, endless water, springs. It's not just pools, it's springs. So the water keeps on coming. They had all the water they needed in Elam. And not only that, 70 palm trees. In other words, there was shade and protection from the sun. So which is better, <coughs> Mara or Elam? And, and let me ask you this, if you had to choose between the two, which would you choose? Would you choose Mara or would you choose Elam? Which one would you choose? Come on, just say it out loud. What, what would you choose? Be honest. Oh, heck yes. We'd all choose Elam. We'd all choose Elam. But which is truly better? And I think there's a solid case to be built for Mara being so much better than Elam. Look at all the things that happened in Mara that didn't happen in Elam. You look at this, verse 25. So they grumbled against Moses. Moses goes to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he throws the log into the water, and what happens to the water when he throws the log in the water? What happens? Come on, I know you can read. What, is it, what does it say? Verse 25. The water becomes sweet. So first, in Mara, they experience a miracle. Like, they get to experience a miracle. And then it says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. So what else happens in Mara is God gives them a promise how? By speaking to them. 
So in Mara, they get this miracle. In Mara, they get to hear God speak. In Mara, they get to receive from God a promise. And not only that, you go on, verse 26, for, he says, for I am the Lord, your healer. In Mara, they get a new name for God. Now, none of these things happened in Elam. None of them. Charles Spurgeon, when, when talking about the difference between these two places, he says, Israel had no miracle at Elam. And they had no statute, and no ordinance, and no promise, and no new revelation of God, and no new name for Jehovah there. All that belonged to Mara. I mean, going back to the story of, of my son Judah being born. Man, again, nobody wants to experience that kind of pain and chaos. But without it, we never would have experienced the miracle of Judah being born. Without it, we, we never would have met our son. Sometimes, listen, sometimes we work so hard to build our lives in such a way that we won't ever have to face a situation like Mara. But you've got to understand, in doing that, we build this protective wall around ourselves that actually keeps us from experiencing God. And you've got to notice this. Notice how they got to Mara in the first place. You know, uh, uh, two weeks ago, uh, Luke taught on this. You go back to Exodus 13, and, and it shows us once, once uh, they were set free from slavery in Egypt, how did God lead the people? He led them with this, this pillar of fire at night and this cloud of smoke during the day. And so they had no doubt where God was, was leading them. When that, when that cloud moved, the people moved. When the cloud camped, the people camped. And so they're just following the cloud. And the cloud took them to Mara. We work so hard to build our lives in such a way that we will never face a situation like Mara. But the reality is, listen to this, the only way to protect ourselves from situations like Mara is to choose to not follow the Lord. Following the Lord can be scary, but when, when you follow the Lord, you experience God in ways that you never would otherwise. Uh, a while back, I read the biography of this dude named George Mueller. You ever heard of Ger George Mueller? Uh, he lived in England in the 1800s, and he's most known for starting these orphanages that in his lifetime uh, cared for over 10,000 orphans. Um, he was famous for uh, never making his orphanages' uh, financial needs publicly known. Uh, he never asked people for money. He just asked God. And there's this one story that stuck out to me so much. There was one morning that he was at one of the orphanages, uh, and they were completely out of food, literally no food left. The orphans didn't know it. So uh, it was breakfast. They sit down at the table, and George is like, I have no clue where this food's going to come from. The orphans have no clue this is going on. So he sits down at the table with the orphans, <clears throat> and just like they did every single morning, he prays there. He leads them in prayer, thanking God for the food they were about to eat. Now, the orphans just thought it was a normal morning. They were about to bring out the food. George knew he needed a miracle from God. And so they sat there and they prayed and thanked God for the food they were about to eat. And in the story, as soon as they were done praying, they get a knock at the door. George goes to open the door of the orphanage and this milkman's uh, milk cart had just broken down in front of their house. <laughs> and he says, look, all of this milk is going to spoil. Uh, so can I just give it to you guys? And he had a whole cart full of bread that could feed the whole orphanage. Which is better, Mara or Elam? Following Jesus can be scary, but if we don't follow Jesus, we don't get to experience his provision. It makes me think of really what you know, Luke and Shaylin experienced in, in deciding to move to a new city and plant a church. My wife and I, in 2016, we were living in Texas, and 
God started to lay in our heart uh, the desire to plant a church. You guys from Texas? You guys from Texas? Oh, okay. You looked at me like when I said Texas. And so I didn't know if like y'all were like, oh, bro, we're from Texas too. But not. I misread that. Okay, cool. Do you like Texas? Okay, cool. Uh, is that why you looked at him? Because you like Texas? Okay, cool, cool, cool. All right. <laughs> Anyways, so uh, uh, we were living in Texas. And um, uh, God started laying a heart to plant a church. And we hadn't seen healthy versions of church planting. We hadn't seen successful versions of church planting, but we couldn't shake this. And I remember a conversation we had early on, and it was, it was really just, man, I think God's calling us to do this. And, and if we do choose to step out in faith like this, our faith is going to grow in ways it won't grow otherwise. We're going to experience God in ways that we wouldn't experience him otherwise because we're going to be putting ourselves in a position where it's like he's got to come through or we fall flat on our face. Again, following Jesus, it can be scary. But, we, but if we don't follow Jesus, we don't get to experience his provision. Which is better, Mara or Elam? Which is better, a life where everything works and fits perfectly, which is what we all want, or a life where you face situations where God has to show up and do what only he can do? Which is better? Like you can either live in fear of Mara or you can look forward to Mara. And as God's people, I'm telling you, we should not fear Mara, we should look forward to Mara. And hear me when I say this. So few of us really know God because so few of us actually have stepped out in faith to follow him. Like there is a generation of Christians being raised up, and I think this, is, this has been true for a few generations now, where our faith is super weak because we're never actually being taught or being pushed to step out in faith where we actually have to walk in faith. So our faith never gets tested, and as a result, we never experience how God comes through. We're so scared of Mara that once we find Elam, we do everything we can to stay there. So question number one is which is better, Mara or Elam? You guys with me? You follow me? Okay, so let's keep going. Chapter 16, verse 1. It says, They set out from Elam... And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, and it's not talking about like sin, sin, there's no metaphor there, it's just, that's what it's called, I don't know why. Which is between Elam and Sinai, which they're on their way to Mount Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now this sounds familiar, right? Two weeks ago, Luke teaching, and here they were pinned up against the Red Sea, and they're grumbling against Moses, saying pretty much the exact same thing. And here we are, chapter 16 now, and they're grumbling again. In fact, this is like the theme of chapters 15, 16, and 17, grumbling. If I was you, if, if you draw in your Bible, make notes in your Bible, I would circle the word grumbled right there in verse 2, and I would go back to chapter 15, verse 24. I don't know if you caught this, but it says, and the people grumbled. I'd circle it there. They grumbled against Moses. You fast forward to chapter 17, uh, verse 3. It says, but the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. Now, I don't know if you're picking up on this. This is really in the point of the sermon, but it's a sidestep here. It keeps saying they're grumbling against who? Who are they grumbling against? Verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 24, it says, the people grumbled against Moses. Chapter 16, verse 3, uh, the people of Israel grumbled against 
Moses. Chapter 17, verse 3, the people grumbled against who? Moses. Who are they grumbling against? Moses. They're grumbling against Moses. Like, okay, sidestep here. Man, don't be a grumbly church member towards your leaders. Like, man, your leaders, we're just trying to do our best to like, all right, God, where are you leading us? And trust him with where he's telling us to go. We're trying to lead you as we try to let God lead us. And, and that's what's happening here. Oh, my gosh, like, that's the theme of this. Okay, but we keep reading. We see grumbling a lot more. Verse, verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. I'm about to make it rain, baby. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in, the, in, in my law or not. Verse 5, on the sixth day when they, were, uh, when, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall uh, see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling, Man, I, and I'm, I'm thankful the Lord hears my grumbling. I don't know about you, but I grumble sometimes. And what grace that he, like, doesn't just, like, punch me in the face and kill me. Like, he actually hears my grumbling and often responds. So, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Verse 9, then Moses said to Aaron, which, by the way, there's a warning there for, for the churchgoer, the church member that grumbles you're not grumbling against your leaders. You're grumbling against the Lord. Okay, then, which that's, uh, beware, okay. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, then you, sh you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So, so these people are grumbling because they're hungry now. And God hears their grumbling, and he makes a promise. He says, listen, <clears throat> here's what I'm going to do. In the mornings, I'm going to pro provide you with bread. In the evenings, I'm going to provide you with meat, and I'm going to prove through all of this that I'm your God. And so you read the, the rest of chapter 16. That's exactly what happens, and there's a whole like other sermon we could preach here, but essentially... Every morning, this bread would come up and settle on the top of the ground. They, they called it manna, which is literally translated, what is it? And so that's what they called it. What is this stuff? Let's gather it and eat it. And then in the evenings, all of these like quail would come, and he'd provide them meat in the evenings. And by the way, you go to verse, uh, let's see, verse, 20, or verse 35, and it says, The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to habitable land. Goodness, that's a long time to be eating the same stinking meal over and over and over. But for 40 years, God proved to them over and over and over, every single day, his faithfulness. Okay, so then you get to chapter 17, which uh, I'm just going to kind of summarize it here. Chapter 17, very similar thing to chapter 15 happens. Here they are again, out in the desert, without water, and you would think at this point, after the first experience of coming up on bitter water and God turning it sweet and making it drinkable, and then the second experience, chapter 16, of being hungry and God providing the food, you'd think that at this point they'd have some faith, but they still grumble. 
And so God once again, graciously, patiently, tells Moses, all right, take this staff in your hand, go hit this rock, and I'll make water come from the rock. And, and again, he provides water for the people. Now I want to come back to the question. In chapter 16, why were these people grumbling? Why were they grumbling? What were they in need of? What were they in need of? It starts with an F and ends with ood. What were they in need of? Food. How many of you, when you get hungry, you get grumbly? Anybody in here? Okay, yeah. Anybody in here have like an infant or a toddler um, and been, been around them like when they get hungry? Dude, they're the worst. Um, uh, so I told you I have four kids. I meant to give uh, uh, your production team back there a picture of my family. I forgot to do that. Four kids. Love our kids. Uh, we left three of them at home. Um, just, you know, we got a dog. Locked the door. Sprinkled some Cheerios on the floor. They're fine. Uh, but we brought, I brought my wife and our youngest, our baby, Lainey. And I got a picture of, of, of them. This is my wife and our baby, Lainey. She's about seven months old. Um, and Lainey's adorable, okay? But when she's hungry, she's the worst. Uh, we, it's a four-hour drive from East Lansing to here. And I, there was like three, three rest stops where I was like, babe, okay, we could just pull off and just kind of let her out here because she's not going to stop crying on this stinking road trip. Like, let's just, you know, let's just ditch this baby. Um, but uh, she's the worst when she's hungry. But well, all of us, we kind of get grumbly when we're hungry. Here, here's, what, here's where I'm going. The first question was, which is better, Mara or Elam? The second question is this, which is better, an empty belly or a full belly? Which is better, an empty stomach or a full stomach? Uh, let me tell you this. Chapter 16 and 17 makes me think of 1 Peter 6 through 7. So 1 Peter 6 through 7, I'll read this. It says, in this you rejoice, that this here is like the fact that God has saved us. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This picture that that Peter gives us here, it's awesome. He compares our faith to gold. Now, gold goes through a series of processes before it's in the form that you and I are used to seeing it in now. And if you go back to ancient Egypt and look at how they found and purified gold, here's what you would see. First, you would see that the gold, it had to be found. They had to find it. They found it in mines. They found it in soil deposits. And after it was found, they would then take it through this process where the dirt was removed or was washed away from the gold, leaving the most dense gold particles behind. So then the next step, after they had these washed-off gold particles, they would then crush it and burn it to break down the particles and remove the impurities from the gold. And this was a long process. It took usually at least five days. They'd stick it in this clay vessel with some other materials that would help the process burn it, make it heat up really hard or really hot. And it was sealed up until it stopped fuming like five days later. Then this burning process, what it would do is it would melt down the gold. And in melting down the gold, it would cause the impurities in the gold to float to the surface. And so as the, the impurities floated to the surface, the goldsmith would then take this tool and would scrape those impurities off the top of the gold. And he would continue to do this until he knew the gold was like totally pure. Do you know how he knew the gold was totally pure? The gold would get to a point where the goldsmith could see his reflection in, in the gold. So understanding that, 
You, you listen again to 1 Peter 1.7. He says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's, here's what he's saying. In the same way that gold must first be found and removed from the dirt, we too are found by God. He pursues us right in the midst of our sin. Even while we're still covered in all of this dirt, he finds us. And in the same way that that dirt had to be washed off the gold, and the blood of Jesus washes away our guilt. It cleanses us from our sin. And in the same way that the gold would then be crushed and <clears throat> thrown into this fire to burn off all of the impurities, we too, it's like God throws us into the fire. God uses these fiery trials in our lives and the grief that comes along with that, he uses that to sanctify us, to purify us by exposing the sin that still exists in our life. So these trials, these struggles, what it does is it causes the sin that exists deep down in our hearts to rise to the surface. Like, that ever happened to you? You get into this crisis, you get into this pressure situation, you're feeling crushed, you're feeling burned, and it draws things out in your life that you're like, man, I thought I dealt with that already. It draws out that rage, that anger, that lack of self-control in you that you thought you had dealt with. It causes it to rise to the surface. And in the same way that the goldsmith would then take the gold out of the fire, uh, wouldn't take the gold out of the fire until he could see the reflection of his face in it, God continues to let us be refined by the fire until he's able to see himself reflected in our lives. So, so these trials... They're necessary to the sanctifying work that God's doing in our lives. And I'm, I'm going to say this, it might sound, sound crazy, but, but grief is a huge part of God's grace. Or the things that make us grumble, they're actually a huge part of God's grace. It's actually one of the primary means by which he shapes us and makes us more like him. So question number two is this, which is better, an empty stomach or a full stomach? There's a strong argument for the empty stomach. Like, how else will we begin to look like the people God wants us to be? And by the way, here's the biggest argument for why Mara is better than Elam and the empty stomach is better than the full stomach. Most simply put, it's because in those places, that's where we meet Jesus. Exodus 17, they needed water or they were going to die. God gives them water. John chapter 4, uh, Jesus to the Samaritan woman who was at the well drawing water says, man, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd come to me and I would give you living water. Exodus 16, they needed food or they were going to die. God gave them bread. John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Exodus 15, the water was bitter to drink, so God made it sweet. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is sweet. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so I just want to kind of zoom out for a second as we close. And I want to, I want to zoom out from Exodus and look at this aerial view of where we are in this overall journey. I mean, here's what you've seen so far. Most broadly put, first, chapters 1 through 13, you see that they are set free from slavery. Second, chapter 14, you see they come up on the Red Sea, they cross the Red Sea. Now, here we are, Exodus 15 through 17, you see they got no water, they got no food. God tests them in the desert. And eventually what you'll see is you get to Joshua. And in Joshua, they cross the Jordan River and they start to conquer the Promised Land. They start to take ground for God's kingdom. I want you to see this. Israel's journey is just like our journey. These four phases 
parallel four phases that we must each go through in our life. The question that I want to leave you with, question three, is where are you in this journey? Phase one, set free from slavery. Like this is the moment of salvation, set free from slavery to sin. Has God set you free from your sin? Phase two, the Red Sea. The Red Sea was the, their, their first real test of faith. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul compares the Red Sea to baptism. Baptism, it's a lot like our first test of faith. Will we follow the Lord into the waters of baptism like Israel followed the Lord into the waters of the Red Sea? Phase three, no water, no food. God kept putting them into these difficult and needy situations so that he could reveal himself to them in a fresh way and so that he could shape their character and ready them to be his people faithfully following him. It's in this phase that God taught them to depend on him. And God does the same thing with us. And then phase four, they're conquering land. That's the phase of the journey where, where the people join God in accomplishing his mission. And listen, today God's mission isn't to conquer land, it's to conquer hearts. Like he sends us out to battle for people's hearts. So where are you at in the journey? I mean, some of you, you're pre-phase one. Like you're still enslaved to your sin just like they were enslaved in Egypt. And you need... Something more powerful than yourself to set you free. You need God to set you free. Some of you, you claim to have been set free. And you believe you've been set free. But your life is no different at all now than it was before you were set free from, from, from slavery to sin. Think about it this way. What if Israel claimed to be free from slavery in Egypt, but they were still in Egypt hauling bricks and still being bossed around by Pharaoh? Like, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what they say, in that case, they're not free. And, and, and for some of you, it's the same. Like, you say you've been set free, but you're still hauling bricks. You're still living in the same sin as before, held captive by it. Some of you, you have been set free, but you're still standing there on the edge of the Red Sea, scared to take that first step of faith and obedience, like baptism. Some of you, you're in the phase the phase we're talking about today, where he's letting you go through it right now. He's testing you. And, and I'll just tell you, without the right lens, you see what you're going through as the grumble phase, but really, it's a grace phase. Like he's getting you ready. And then some of you, you're in phase four, you're in the conquering phase. You're on mission with the Lord, conquering hearts for his kingdom. And the question I want to leave you with is, where are you in the journey? And so here's how I want to close. I just want to pray. And as I pray, I want you to pray where you are. God, where am I at? Where am I at? Am I still enslaved to sin like the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt? God, where am I at? Am, am, I, am I standing on the edge of the Red Sea, set free from sin, but now needing to learn to take my first steps of faith? God, where am I at? Am I out in the desert where you're testing me? Is there a reason I'm going through what I'm going through right now? Because you are trying to refine my character, reveal yourself to me. God, am I in that fourth phase? I'm, I'm on mission with you, conquering hearts. I want you to ask him that right now. Lord, I just pray over these, over these people. Lord, I pray that in this moment you would make it so clear where they are, what phase of the journey they're in. For the ones who are in that first phase, uh, still enslaved in their sin, Lord, I pray that you would make it so clear and that they would see that in Christ they can be fully set free. 
Lord, for those who are in phase two, standing on the edge of the Red Sea, needing to take that first step of obedience uh, through publicly professing their faith in baptism, Lord, would you make that clear? Help them to see that's where they're at, and you want them to keep moving forward. Lord, those who are in phase three where you are just, you've got them in this season where, man, it feels like a season of grumbling, but really it's a season of grace where you are trying to refine their character and show them who you are. Lord, would you just open their eyes to see that? In fact, I just want to ask this. While, while you're sitting there, eyes closed, is anybody willing just by poking their hand up in the air, willing to admit that, hey, I think I'm in phase three, the no water, no food phase where God is just like testing me and trying to teach me to depend on him. Uh, this phase is brutal. It stinks. I'm grumbling a lot. Anybody willing to stick their hand up? Yeah, I just, Father, I pray for those in the room who just put their hand up. Lord, I pray over them. I pray that you would uh, give them like uh, just that, that, that moment where you gave the Israelites, where you made the water sweet. That moment where uh, the bread started to show up <clears throat> in the morning. The quail started to show up at night. That moment where the water came from the rock, Lord, would you just allow that to happen and that through that they would experience you in a way they've never experienced you before and their faith would skyrocket, getting them ready to be conquerors for you. Lord, I pray that through this, you'd be raising up people in this room to conquer hearts in this city and on this campus. Lord, we ask all of this, believing that you'll do it, believing that you are doing it, and I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.